the epistle for this 23rd Sunday after Pentecost is taken from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Brethren, be followers of me and observe them who walk so as you have our model. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. But our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will reform the body of our loneliness, made like to the body of his glory, according to the operation whereby also he is able to subdue all things unto himself. Therefore, my dearly beloved brethren, and most desired, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beg of Evodia, and I beseech Syntyche, to be of one mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, my sincere companion, help those women who have labored with me in the gospel with Clement and the rest of my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Please stand for the gospel. The gospel is taken from the ninth chapter of the gospel of St. Matthew. At that time, as Jesus was speaking to the multitudes, behold, a certain ruler came up and adored him, saying, Lord, my daughter is even now dead, but come, lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus, rising up, followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who was troubled with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I shall touch only his garment, I shall be healed. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Be of good heart, daughter. Thy faith has made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. And when Jesus was come into the house of the ruler and saw the minstrels and the multitude making a rout, he said, Give place. For the girl is not dead, but sleeps. And they laughed him to scorn. And when the multitude was put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. And the fame hereof went abroad into all that country. Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. My dear faithful, every good teacher makes use both of compliments and rebukes in instructing his students and followers. And the compliments are in order to praise good behavior and also indicate what good behavior looks like so the students will know what good behavior is. And the rebuke, so the chiding, is in order to discourage bad behavior and also to indicate what bad behavior looks like. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ was the supreme teacher. He is incarnate wisdom, God's own truth, as it were, embodied in a human nature. And someone whose every single action was an example of supreme virtue. And as such, our Lord, as the greatest of teachers, he used both compliments and rebukes when dealing with his followers. And I think it's very important for us when we read the Gospels to pay attention to his compliments and pay attention to his rebukes so we can know what, in the mind of our Lord, constitutes praiseworthy behavior and we know what constitutes blameworthy behavior so we can do the things that will, will merit us praise 
and we can avoid the things that will merit us blame from our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, normally speaking, it's not good that we seek compliments from, from other people. Um, but, but when it comes to our Lord himself, it's not only not wrong to seek compliments from our Lord, it's almost like it's a duty for us to want the compliments of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must want with all of our hearts to hear one day from the lips of our Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. What a joy it would be to hear someone who we know is truth itself, who knows us better than we know ourselves, to say to us, you are a good person. What a joy that would be. And so this is why it's important for us to know exactly what constitutes praiseworthy actions in the eyes of our Lord and what constitutes blameworthy actions. And I think if we examine the four Gospels with this in mind, and it's so fruitful for us to, to have this sort of idea, let's look in the, let's hunt around in the Gospel having this optic in mind. Who does our Lord praise and who does he criticize? And we just look around and, and things start to, to become clear for us. And when, when I, when I did this investigation myself, what I found was the vast majority of our Lord's praise and blame, if, if we put the, the, his, his relationship with the scribes and Pharisees to the side and we just consider his, his words to his followers, the vast majority of his praise and blame concerns one thing, and that is the practice of faith. Whether someone is manifesting faith, a strong faith, that gets praise, or whether someone is manifesting a weak faith. And that is what gets blame from truth itself, from our Lord Jesus Christ. How many times in the Gospels do we hear from our Lord the words, Oh, you of little faith. That's like the ultimate rebuke from our Lord. It's almost like it was a pat phrase. It appears so many times in the Gospels. It was our Lord's preferred phrase in order to give someone a rebuke. Oh, you of little faith. In his Sermon on the Mount, our Lord chides those who worry about their clothing and their food as being of little faith. And there's two situations on the Lake of the Gennesaret, that beautiful lake in Galilee that was like the center of our Lord's public life. There's two situations with the apostles where he rebukes them for having little faith. One is the time when he's sleeping in the boat and they're crying, they wake him up in the midst of the storm. They are afraid they're going to perish when God is right there. He's in the boat. They wake him up and he says, oh, you of little faith. And the other time is when he's walking on the water, Peter comes out with a leap of faith into the water and he's walking, but as he goes along, his faith gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And he says, Lord, save me because he's falling into the water. And our Lord rebukes him, O oh, Peter, you of little faith. There's another time when the apostles have set out and they've forgotten to take bread. They forgot to, to pack their lunches when, when they're going out on, on their journey. And our Lord says, you know, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the apostles is like, oh, well, he's saying that because we forgot to bring bread. He's talking about bread because we forgot to bring bread. And, um, of course, that's not what our Lord is referring to at all. And he says to them, Oh, you of little faith, you're focused on material things. 
not thinking about spiritual things. So it becomes clear to us that if our Lord is going to be upset with one of his followers and use a rebuke, it will be for this reason that the follower was lacking faith. Our Lord is expecting us to have a supernatural outlook in all that we do, to trust that God will take care of us no matter what, as long as we are living in a spirit of faith. And if we are rebuked on Judgment Day, chances are you're going to hear something like this. You of little faith. You had the Catholic faith, but your faith was weak. It could have been a much stronger influence in your life, but you were always slipping down to the natural level. How much time you wasted in your life chasing after shadows when you could have been following me. We don't want to hear that kind of rebuke after our life is finished, and there's no chance of living any other life than the life that we've just completed. We want to hear one of those beautiful compliments that our Lord gives and which he gladly gives to those who manifest that strong faith. Those who are complimented in the Gospels should be like our heroes, and we kind of have this intrinsic liking for them. Um, it's These Gospel stories become beautiful be, precisely because we see in them this very generous belief in our Lord and this very generous action that follows from that belief. They are such good examples for us, and we should desire to imitate them. And our Lord seems to want to go out of his way to tell the people who manifest this faith that really, in a sense, it's not he who has worked the miracle. He almost says to them, it's your faith that has caused this good effect to happen to you. It's your faith that has done this, not so much me. He tells the blind man Bartimaeus in, in Jericho that it's his faith that has made him whole, that has cured his blindness. He tells the Samaritan leper the same thing, you know, when the one leper comes back and gives thanks to, to our Lord. Our Lord tells him, it's your faith that has cured you. He says something similar to Mary Magdalene, and this is not a question of a bodily cure, but a spiritual cure when she goes into the house of Simon the leper, and she goes up behind our Lord and, and wipes his feet with her hair and the ointment. Our Lord says, it's thy faith that has made thee safe. Matthew tells us that it was because our Lord saw the faith of the friends of the crippled man that that was the reason why he cured the crippled man. And when, in that very famous episode, a very beautiful episode, when there's this Syro-Phoenician woman, this Gentile woman from a pagan nation, approaches our Lord and asks that he cure his daughter, our Lord gives her a very harsh and almost even rude rebuke to her, saying, you know, it's not fit to give to dogs the, the food from the master's table. And she responds by saying, well, you know, the dogs do get at least a few crumbs from the table. And our Lord marvels. There's only a few times when our Lord marvels in the gospel, and that's when he sees a very, very strong faith. And he says, oh, woman, great is your faith. And something very similar happens. The, the, I think that's probably the num number one or number two in the gospels. Um, the other one would be the centurion, the Gentile centurion. It's, it's remarkable 
that the two greatest manifestations of faith in the Gospels are Gentiles. But the other one was the centurion. And the centurion manifests a faith way beyond everybody else because he believes that not only is our Lord able to cure someone when he's in the presence of someone, when he's in the physical presence of someone, but our Lord is able to cure at a distance. He just has to say something to happen, and it happens. You know, that's how Genesis describes God working. He just says something, and it happens. When we say something, nothing happens. we got to actually do it. If we want it to happen, we have to actually do it. We can't just say, let this happen. So our Lord gives the centurion the great compliment of saying that his faith is greater than that of all the Jews that he's ever met. And then there's this woman in today's gospel who has this case of hemorrhaging. She has internal bleeding, and she believes that all she will have to do is not even ask our Lord. She doesn't even have to request from our Lord that he cure her, but somehow that his very person is holy. His very person has power. All she has to do is reach out and just grab not even the his, his body, but just grab the tassel of his cloak. You know, that prayer shawl that the Jews wear. Just grab the tassel of his prayer shawl and that she would be cured. Um, she has to be very bold in doing this because if you have an issue of blood in, in uh, the Jewish law, you're ritually unclean and anybody you touch is ritually unclean. So she believes that our Lord's cleanliness can overcome her uncleanliness. And she's not going to defile him but he's going to cleanse her. So it takes a great boldness on our part, and we know it was her faith that was rewarded in her cure because our Lord, again, gives this same phrase to her. He tells her the same thing. Be of good confidence, daughter. Thy faith has made thee whole. So these gospel stories, these very beautiful gospel stories, both on the side of our Lord's rebukes And on the side of our Lord's compliments, they teach us what it means to practice the faith. And when we consider how we can go about seeking this compliment from our Lord and avoiding his rebuke, especially when it comes to our judgment day, how can we live our life so as to have that ambition to receive that great compliment from our Lord when we, when we die, and not to hear a rebuke from him, I think that there's really three things that we, we need to be on top of when we're living our faith in the course of our life. First thing is, we have to look at reality as if God exists. We've got to somehow look at reality with the eyes of faith. When we see things around us, we also see God present in reality. That's the problem with those of little faith. They're not noticing that God is here. God is around. God is in control. When our Lord rebukes those people at the Sermon of the Mount, it's because they can't even notice how God takes care of nature. He's clothing the flowers of the field, the lilies, in such a beautiful way. Why are you worried about your clothes? These lilies that God clothes are so beautiful. Why wouldn't he take care of you as well? Oh, you of little faith. 
the apostles on the boat. They don't even notice that God is there. He's right there in the boat. Everything's going to be all right because it's God. Why are you worried? All of us, we're always worrying about the future. We're worrying about so many things that are really out of our control, but are in the control of God. We can't decide our future. We can plan. We must plan. We can't decide what's going to happen. That's God's domain. We have to trust that God will take care of us if we live according to the faith. So those who have a big faith, they're able to see the action of God everywhere. They're able to notice that God is in control. Even in the 21st century, God's still in control. Despite of all the evil in the world, despite that there's so little morality, Christianity is dying, and so on, the church is in crisis. God is still alive. He's still in control. Do we believe that? Do we act like that? And do we trust that if I leave to God what belongs to God and I let him do his divine thing in my life, that everything will be all right? Do I believe that? Do I believe that God exists? The second thing we have to do is we have to pray as if God exists. We have to pray as if God is real, as if God hears me, as if he's listening, and my prayers make an impact. When you have people of little faith, something happens to them, something they don't like, something that's, they're in a, a state of distress. First thing they do is they start planning. What am I going to do? I'm going to do this, or I'm going to try this, or I'm going to have recourse to this solution or this means in my life. And they go frantically to try to fix everything up. And then maybe step seven, 17, think, hey, Maybe I should pray to God about this. Maybe I'm going to need God's help in order to resolve this situation in my life. It's long after they put their trust in some natural solution. They have all their confidence in what they're able to do. And they don't think about really begging God to help them until they've exhausted all the material means, all the material resources. They have to, it's almost like God has to prove to them that, yeah, he's really the ultimate one, the only one that can give a solution to their problems. Whereas those who have a big faith, they are constantly conscious of the fact that everything, everything ultimately falls back on God. He is the only one that has all the solutions. He is the only one that can truly provide me happiness and really, really take care of me in this life. And they actually pray as if God has all the solutions. You know that one of the things um, when Archbishop Lefebvre, when he designed the, the rule of the Society of St. Pius X, he wanted the members of the community of the society to pray prime, every morning. And the, and the offices that you pray as a community have a greater impact on you than the ones you pray just individually. 
I remember in the early days of my priesthood, there was, there was a more senior priest talking to me, and he was, he was talking about what an, another, uh, an older priest had told him. And this older priest was just raving about Prime. Prime is so beautiful. And he was especially focusing on the fact that the church has us say three times in a row in Prime, Oh Lord, come to my aid. Oh Lord, make haste to help me. Three times in a row, we're just crying out to God, saying, you're the one with all power. I'm basically nothing. There's nothing I can do. I have so little power in this life. And there's another passage of Prime where, we, where again, we repeat over and over again, O Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us. O Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us. And this, these sort of very heartfelt prayers to God where we acknowledge that we're so little, there's so much that's out of our control in this life, and that you, O oh God, you are the one that really takes care of me. You are really the one that has all the solutions in this life. That's what's going on with this woman with the issue of blood. She's uh, wasted all of her money on the doctor's And she realizes, she's finally realized that really, you know, what we can do is is extremely little. She says, I've got to have recourse to God. And she has this deep conviction that God can help her. God wants to help her. And she has recourse to him with a strong faith. This is what we have to do. So the first thing is we have to look at reality as if God exists. We have to see that God works in reality, that he's in control of reality. Secondly, we have to pray as if God exists, as if He he's real. We have to continually be examining ourselves. Is my prayer real or not? Does it come from the heart or is it just a formula? And then thirdly, we have to act as if God exists. This is the challenge for every single Catholic who has to make daily decisions. Will I decide to to do something according to what the faith tells me, or will I decide to do something according to what human wisdom tells me? One one very plain example of this is when people get married, and then they say, how many kids are we going to have? And human wisdom, the wisdom of the world, says, oh, you don't want to have kids. I mean, kids are a huge burden on you. It's a, it's a huge, it's a huge sacrifice you're going to have to make to, to bring children. I mean, I mean, the best thing is really have no kids. I mean, if you absolutely, absolutely, really, really want kids, make sure not to have any more than two kids. I mean, if you're having all the kids that God gives you, I mean, that's just so irresponsible. That's so irresponsible. That's the wisdom of the world, and it's it's edifying, especially in the states all of of our traditional Catholics, who hold it as a principle, as a first principle, that they should have all the children that God gives them, and they trust that God will take care of the rest. That everything will work out, even though they don't see it, even though they haven't worked out all the financials, and they don't know how many children God will give them, they trust that it will work out. This is the kind of faith we must have on a regular basis, those who have little faith, what I've noticed in the traditional Catholic world, is they kind of draw a line. 
They, they, they said, okay, you know, the faith is going to influence my life so much, but I'm going to sort of draw a line right here. I'm not going to let it get past that. And past that is called a my zone. And I'm going to have the freedom to be worldly or engage in worldly things, uh, do things according to worldly wisdom in that zone. God, don't cramp my style too much. I'll let you in, but only to this degree. And past that, you must not ask me anymore. Whereas those who have a big faith, they're always making decisions, firstly, on the basis of the faith. Like, where do I go to Mass? I mean, this is very common in traditional Catholic world, especially after Sumor and Pontificum, where you can have like 10 options for your traditional Mass. And some people are like, well, I mean, this place over here is extremely convenient for me. And they've got, they've got like a morning mass or they've got a low mass. They've, they've got a very convenient mass. Uh, so I think I'll go there, even though they recognize that probably it's more spiritually beneficial to go somewhere else. It's important that we have this great generosity to God. There are other people who are kind of like, um, sacramental Catholics. They come to mass or they do the faith in order to get the sacraments but nothing else. They don't want to be a part of building up the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. They, want, they don't want to serve our Lord Jesus Christ in his work, in their parish. Um, they just like, well, I've got to do these things, the church demands these things, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to do that, that minimum, and then past that, God can't ask anymore. So my dear faithful, regardless of what happens to us in this life, we must hear a compliment from our Lord on the day of our judgment. That's one thing we have to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Father. But that's only going to happen if we develop that ability consistently to choose what our faith tells us is best over what the world tells us is, is wise. We have to want to live close to our Lord Jesus Christ in our actions, in our prayers. We must want to see with the eyes of faith. We have to pray to him as the only one who can really make us happy, as the only one who really has solutions for our life. When Our Lady went to see her cousin Elizabeth, Elizabeth gave her a very great compliment. She said to her, Blessed are you, who have believed, because all the things that our Lord said he would do, God said he would do, will be accomplished in you. And Our Lady, hearing that, broke out into a magnificat and admitted that God had done great things for her, that all generations would call her blessed because of her faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.